What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. You know, hard conversations are hard, aren't they? I think that goes without saying. That's why we avoid them. That's why we avoid them. You know, I made a rule when I got out of my relationship at 27. Uh, I was dating a woman for five years and we got engaged. When I got out of the relationship, I remember thinking to myself, like, how did I get here? How did I get to a place where I felt so disconnected from myself? I felt like I hadn't been myself in years. Like, truthfully, like I was a, a just a ghost making decisions and, and autopiloting life. I you know, woke up to the fact that I wasn't paying attention. And I made a rule because I said, how did I get here? And I thought I avoided every hard conversation. So I made a rule that I would have every conversation I didn't want to have because those are the ones that mattered. And that was one of the hardest commitments I ever made. And of course, you know, you get into the nuances of, well, I know I need to have that conversation, but I'm just going to wait a couple of weeks. And I remember I was dating this girl and I didn't want to break up with her. I didn't want to have the conversation. So I'm like, ah, I'll just wait a couple of weeks. And I remember when I broke up with her a couple of weeks later, she said to me, you knew this three weeks ago, but you allowed me to f- fall for you more, feel for you more. And I remember I broke down that night thinking about how out of integrity that was, that I caused this other person pain because I was afraid to have a conversation. And and that's why I added a little caveat to the rule. Have every conversation I don't want to have and have at the moment I feel the need to have it the moment it intuitively comes up. And that's one of the best things you can do. It will change your life. I would imagine that you're sitting on the edge of lots of hard conversations that you haven't had. I would imagine that you're sitting on the edge of plenty of words that have not been spoken. And I invite you to speak them. I um, want to share too a quote that completely changed my life too. It added another layer to the level of how I wanted to be in the world and the level of integrity that my integrity just kept getting more defined. Like an integrity being like, am I in alignment with what is true for me? Am I being honest with people, with myself? And that I always wanted to live in this space where who I'm being on the outside is how I feel on the inside. That there's no line between those two things. Um, obviously in a space of what's safe to do and what's safe to say and and still being mindful of that. And I read this quote from Maya Angelou, which is, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. That quote I read in, in a, and it just put the pieces together of an awareness I was sitting on, but it hadn't really, you know, when you read a quote and you're like, shit, that's it. That's the okay, that makes sense. And I was, you know, repeating the same decisions and calling them mistakes and making, you know, and I I really feel like any mistake that you make more than once and you are conscious of the experience that results from the choice becomes a choice, you know, and that idea that we're always doing the best we can with what we have. Yes, I agree with that. 
And I think we are all sitting on an immense amount of unintegrated wisdom that sits in the pain of the mistake. And so instead of changing our behavior and changing our lives, because we'd rather sit in familiar pain than stand on the edge of uncertainty and experience the life, love, and relationships we truly want, because we'd generally rather do that, we don't expand and grow and our lives end up in the same patterns, the same choices and the same relationships. And then we wonder why, but there's no secret or mystery to why it's that we just keep making the same choices and showing up in the same way. We keep not having a boundary. We keep tolerating bullshit from other people, from ourselves. And that if you can stand in those beautiful words derived from an immense amount of pain that Maya Angelou wrote, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Do you know better? Because I guarantee there are areas of your life where you know better. And so you are invited to do better. You are invited to grow. You are invited to integrate that. Stop fucking around with things you've already learned and then complaining to your friends about how you keep meeting these people, keep doing that, keep getting these results, keep being a dick, keep pushing people away. Keep not learning about how to get to know your feelings, your emotions, your knowledge, trusting yourself, all these things. It's time to step in to that space of taking responsibility for yourself. So there's two rules for you. Have all the conversations you don't want to have because they're the ones that matter. And once you know better, do better. Once you know better, do better. I wanted to take a quick break in this episode to talk to you about the greatest struggle that people have in dating, and that is asking the right questions. And not just the right questions, but asking hard questions, questions that determine if someone wants what you want, what you are, what your relationship status is, that, that deepen vulnerability and intimacy. And ultimately, asking the right questions allows you to get to know someone on a deeper level gets to know their values, get to know whether they're a good fit for you. Now, I recognize that when I get feedback on asking questions, people say that's too hard to ask or it's too soon to ask that or whatever the excuse or thought or feeling or fear might be. And so I thought, shit, let me ask the hard questions. And that's why I created Create the Love Cards. Create the Love Cards is created with such intention for you to deepen your conversations on dating. And because of that, the deck, when you open it up, it fits two smartphones. So you can put your phone inside the box as you take the cards out so you can both be present. Now, if someone doesn't want to play, I'm like, swipe left. That's a red flag. Like, who doesn't want to play a game? Second, I've got it in four sections. So we've got foreplay, diving deeper, too much information, because would it be a deck from me if it didn't have TMI, and building chemistry. So there's four sections for you to explore the landscapes of one another and see if you're a good fit. If you want to have deeper conversations, if you want to take this deck of cards on your dates or on your date night, or you think this would be a good gift for a couple, then go to createthelove.com slash cards. I put them at a really accessible price of 30 bucks and I can't wait for you to check them out. They've received rave reviews. People are loving them. I have actually one friend who took them out on its second date with someone that she was hitting it off with. And after she got the answers to the questions that the deck provided, she realized that this person was not a good fit. And swipe left, 
and now is in a relationship with someone she loves. So that's what dating is about, is it's about filtering. And also my intention is to support you along that journey to not just finding the person that you want, but if you're with them, asking the questions that help create and deepen intimacy. So go to createthelove.com slash cards and grab a set now. I wanted to have my good friend on the podcast who works with couples, teaches therapists, uh, teaches at a college at Northwestern University, and just an incredibly brilliant, mindful, very amazing teacher. And she wrote an article in Psychology Today about how do I have a conversation with my partner, who's a white male, about racism. Now, I want you to be mindful that this is actually how you have all hard conversations. And if you're listening to this and you're a white male and you're like, I don't want to fucking listen to this podcast if it's about that bullshit. That's exactly why we should all listen to it, because it's not about just that. It's just really about the, you know, what shows up in hard conversations is the inability to hear something sometimes. And so that's what we're going to explore. And, um, you know, if that's the skill set we're looking to develop is how do I sit in potentially uncomfortable truths or just uncomfort so I can hear my partner, so I can listen, and then I can share my experience too. And so we go through and discuss the dialogue and conversation of how to handle conflict and what comes up. So a lot of the questions I've gotten in the last you know, two weeks or how do I talk to my family about race? How do I talk to my, you know, brother, sister, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, son, daughter, mother, father, you know, all the things. How do I do this at work? How do I, you know, and this is about how to have hard conversations. And I promise you that your ability to have hard conversations will determine a great deal of the quality of your life, the quality of your relationships, and also your ability to feel safe within your own body. Um, it will help to make you feel more safe when you know that you got your own back, when you know that you can stand in your truth. And it's not about someone agreeing with your truth. It's about the expression of truth. You know, because we will all say things that I've probably said something in the last, you know, eight minutes that you're like, I don't agree with that. And I'm like, that's okay. Because that's how we find compromise. That's how we find the middle. That's how we find anything. So I know we start out in the podcast that we just recorded saying like, hey, you know, we're just asking for some grace. And, you know, there is, this is a really important conversation. And I'm really excited to share it with you. And I'm excited to see how it influences all of your relationships and especially if you're sort of stuck talking to, you know, someone who you're close with, where you have different views on things. But instead of just saying their view is shit and yours is right, or vice versa, saying like, tell me more about you. Tell me more where that comes from. So Dr. Alexandra Salman, who I've had on twice two of some of my most popular episodes, shares and drops an immense amount of knowledge and wisdom in this episode. And I'm so excited to share it with you. And I, uh, again, I just can't wait to see what it brings to your life. So before I go and bring on Dr. Salman, 
wherever you listen to this, wherever you get this, please subscribe, give it a five-star review, a written review. If this episode is resonant with you, then please share it. Tag me on Instagram. Um, I try to reshare all the tags I get. And thank you so much for being supportive and being open and having these conversations. I appreciate you and so much love to you. Let's change this world together. We're going to be talking about the conversation to do with how to have really hard conversations and how to do it in the context of race, in the context of privilege, in the context of all of these things. I recently read an article from Dr. Alexandra Salman that was about that, about how do you have this really hard conversation with your white male partner about your differences in how you see the world? Am I summarizing that? Well, first off, welcome, Dr. Alexandra Salman. You're always one of my favorites to have on here, so I appreciate you being here and and um, having the courage to dance in a subject that that is delicate, of course. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's always you know that I love I love diving in wherever we dive in. Ditto. And and you when we first uh, discussed possibly doing this podcast. So for all of you listening know that there is one an extreme like care and sensitivity to the words we're using but also if we could ask for some grace in knowing that we haven't put these words in this order really ever and so um just maybe just have a little uh, uh compassion for the the vulnerable courageous act of having this combo and 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 I know that you mentioned Alexandra about you know, it's interesting to have two white people having this conversation. And then, uh, you know, do you want to speak more to that? Because I really appreciated how you put that. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I think there are so many ways that when it comes to race, white people get really quiet. And I think mm-hmm. it's, even though we have a race, right, our race, my, my skin is white. And that comes with all kinds of layers of meaning and legacy and impact. But when white is the default setting, as it is certainly in the spaces where you and I both live and our, you know, worlds we operate in, it's easy to feel like we don't, we are the ones who don't have a race and it is um, people of color who actually have a race. And so, yeah, as we were imagining this conversation, there was a part of me that was like, oh, wait, we can't do this conversation unless we have a person of color with us. And I think Mm -hmm. that is in fact part of the problem. So what I hope we do, my intent is that you and I center whiteness in the service of understanding it and not relying again and again on people of color, specifically right now, Black people who are sitting with raw, collective, generational trauma. So we don't sort of ask them to help us, you know, legitimize us, like wave a little wand over our heads and say, okay, you can talk about this. Um, I think it's really important that, that, you know, certainly like the movement and the activism that comes from people of color is oftentimes like the impetus. But I hope, I hope that this moment in our history is about white people starting to have their own reckonings and, um, and realizing that we are the, like we are the problem and that we are hopefully part of the solution and we don't need, I hope, so I hope that's my intention, right? That we can do this in a way that invites all listeners, but especially white listeners to kind of figure out where do you want to be in this moment? What are the conversations that you want to have here specifically? You know, the article that you're referencing came from a bunch of questions I was getting 
from white women who love white men mm-hmm. as, as boyfriends and husbands and intimate partners, but who are aware that it's hard to talk about right now because the white women are feeling, these were examples of white women who are feeling really activated mm-hmm. and really raw and really charged. And that their male partner was like, yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, it's hard. And I will vote, you know, I won't, I won't be voting for Trump if in, you know, in the U S but sort of like that was maybe the, that was maybe the end of it. And so how do we deepen and how do we invite white men into this conversation in a, in a more significant way? You know, I, I explore the, when I think about what you're saying about a white partner, female speaking to a white male partner. And I think about the initial, I shared on my Instagram about the first time I ever heard Black Lives Matter, I'm Canadian, so we don't even really learn about about sl- the history of slavery. We don't, you know, that, which should not be conveniently left out because, of course, we're not only heavily influenced by the United States, but even from my understanding, the history of slavery is not even completely taught in the United States. So, you know, we have our own history with race and our indigenous people mm-hmm. and it was interesting for me to first be like, I remember I said to my friend who's a black woman who lives in Brooklyn, I remember saying, well, we we're having this discussion about Black Lives Matter. I was so ignorant to the whole subject. Uh, you know, I grew up with black friends, but I never really thought about it, which is part of the ignorance, mm-hmm. you know, which is not, an ex- you know, because people will say, well, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. It, that was not it. It was that I really didn't even see my privilege because I didn't have to see my privilege. And that is the whole point of white privilege is you don't even have to think about does the color of your skin influence anything. And I was talking to my friend and I said, well, don't all lives matter? And oh my Lord, I I got schooled and educated Mm -hmm. very quick. And it was actually a really beautiful, um, there was a lot of anger in, in her expression, which was totally fair. And I quickly learned because it it was about connection. You know, it was about this person I really cared about sharing something that was so visceral. I realized, of course, it's about rehumanizing those who've been dehumanized. Yeah. And that this conversation, and you might be listening and be like, I don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to listen to this. Well, this is about having all hard conversations. Yeah. You know, this is about how do you hold space for any opposing view or different view or alternate view? And Think about, just to bring it back to what you said about the female speaking to a male, is my experience of my partner when she first learned, when she was first really diving into why is her voice, why can't she share her voice when, you know, due to the patriarchy and the shaping. I, I now, as you're saying, you know, I recognize that there is more understanding of what it's like to be suppressed, but there are far more intersections for people of color. And, and so as a white male who might be receiving that from your partner or a male, but a white male, it can be hard to understand because you don't even know what it's like to experience any form of mm-hmm. suppression or oppression. Right. Which is not to say that you don't understand the experience of pain, mm-hmm. shame, silence, humiliation, embarrassment, loneliness, right? It just means that it's not your gender and your skin color that have been the source of those experiences. And that I think is like a really important, can be like a really important gateway, right? That that, that it's, that in some ways, yes, you, neither one of us will ever know the experience in this lifetime, at least, of living with skin color that isn't white, 
but certainly there are certainly as humans, there's no aspect of pain that we can't understand. So that's if, if we want to, right. If we choose to. And uh, I think there are some like specific things around gender socialization that may make it harder for a male partner to lean into this work than a female partner. I mean, I think it's, it's complicated. I think sometimes, I think there are times when maybe a female partner is getting really focused on what her male partner is saying or not saying, because it's maybe a bit easier than looking at her own stuff. And right now white women are having a massive freaking reckoning. You know, what happened with Amy Cooper in Central Park is, um, is such a reflection of this moment. And there's, even though like I was, so I, you know, have a, a women's studies degree as my undergraduate degree, and I have a gender studies certificate as my graduate degree. And I was studying feminism and women's studies during the 90s, which was the first time we were using this term intersectional feminism, which is what you're getting at, which is there's really no meaningful way of talking about like men versus women, because there are so many other factors that shape a gendered experience. Well, which women are we talking about? Women of color, white women, college educated women or not college educated women, Jewish women or Christian women. So that, that, you know, trans women or cis women. So that whole like gender is always too thin of a cut. But even then, like I'm, you know, being still somebody who is teaching um, undergraduates and graduate students, I mean, they school me all of the time because we keep evolving. So they start off, you know, like where they start their conversation is like, you know, they get, they are so much more, so much further along than I could have been because this is all evolving. And, um, and when somebody like your black friend in Brooklyn takes the time to school you, when my students, whether it's a white ally or a black student, like take the time to say you missed a big opportunity, like in those moments, we can get stuck in the fragility or we can be grateful for the gift of like holding up a mirror and saying like, you have work to do here. Yeah. I was sitting with my uh, group. Uh, there was a group of friends and one of them was Chinese and the other one is um, half Chinese, half Vietnamese. And we have another friend who is white and he was saying, well, we were talking about the oppression and the racism towards Chinese people in Canada and the building of the railroads and things like that. And I had just gone to the railroad museum and there was a whole section with my, one of my best friends who's Chinese. And there was a whole section on the racism that the Chinese experienced. And we were talking about this. And my one friend who's white said, you know, he basically was defending that his father was an immigrant and grew up really poor. And that story is still valid. And I was like, Mm -hmm. My friend, like, imagine adding Chinese to that. Like, that's white privilege. And yeah. and I realized that that in the fragility that I had previously had too, there's like in the defensiveness, there's no listening. Yeah. You know, there's I, I've immediately said I need to protect the right to my own story and my own pain. And what I think we don't realize, and this is true of intimate relationships and all hard conversations, is the validation of someone else's pain is not the invalidation of your own, you know? And that's big. That's a big thing to hold that we so desperately want to be validated that we forget that, that there's not, it's not an either or, no. you know, and, and your article really spoke to that, like that defensiveness. Yeah. Which is, it sometimes happens so quickly. We don't even know we've slipped into it. So that is a, as a vital first piece of work is knowing when you go from a big 
wide open heart centered space to a yes, but right. And oftentimes like it literally, those are the words. Yes, but right. So with your friend, it probably was yes, but my family grew up poor. Yes, but my fan, you know, I felt this. And the moment we do that, you're right. It doesn't matter. You know, it, 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 what, what happens in our intimate relationships is such a mirror for this conversation. So there it was playing out in a conversation around race, but you know that that happens all the time and kitchens all across the country yeah. where one person raises a concern and the response is yes, but you did that other thing on Tuesday that we talked about. So just in that moment, like you said, the, the recognition of your suffering is not the invalidation of my suffering, but man, the moment we go there, it is, um, it, it is, uh, and when it has to do with race, right there, it shuts the conversation down because that's what, that's one of the things that has, has really sat with me so clearly this week is the amount of emotional effort and bandwidth it takes for a person of color to point something out to a white person. It's just like, I cannot imagine this is going to go well. I've had, you know, 84,000 experiences of this not going well, but here we go again. If, if they choose to take that moment, right. And if a person of color doesn't take the opportunity to give to raise it in that moment, then we walk away, uh, not, not even knowing and our kind of racist, you know, tendencies then continue. We haven't been called to account, but it's, it's really rough that, that, that is, um, it's rough and it's unfair that so often a person of color is sort of doing the running, the running the bandwidth, you know, like what's, how much does, does this relationship mean to me? How well do I imagine this conversation will go? How active is my trauma in this particular moment? What else do I have to get done today? Because it is not, it is uh, my understanding, my sense, my experience, what I've heard from the people of color that I work with and, you know, I'm friends with is that it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. It's very hard to talk to a white person about whiteness. Yeah. All the really beautiful teachers that I'm following on Instagram uh, which I'll for sure share in the notes of this episode so you can find resources if that's something that interests you, which, of course, we encourage. It, it, there is a lot of conversation about the exhaustion. Like, don't DM me. Like, there's resources everywhere. Google the shit. Like, click <laughs> on the link in my bio. I already created a post with all these. And that's been really um, helpful. And I feel like in some ways a bit of shame that I'm uh, late to the conversation, you know, in – you know, I, we were talking just before we started recording, and that's why I was like, we might as well just hit record because I really thought, like, okay, this comes up now with George Floyd, but this has come up many times. This is an, obviously this is a repeated cycle of pain. This is a, and nothing really has changed. I watched I Am Not Your Negro, and what a beautiful movie and a painful movie, and a you know just the repeating of the exact same conversations the exact. And if things had changed, there wouldn't be the repeating of the conversations, mm -hmm. you know, and if any of us did this in our relationships, we'd be exhausted and want to break up. And, you know, that's really the invitation that all conversations that occur with conflict offer is the relationship either fractures or it deepens. Right. You know, and we all have the invitation to deepening. You know, I, I think about just the simple question. You mentioned this uh, line in your in your article that. They're, you're either racist or anti-racist, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I like that it's cut that way because it's, it's either like, it's a privilege to be silent. And I read a quote on 
Rachel Rogers page, who did a beautiful video the other day that I watched. And in it, she said, it's a quote from Ellie Weisel. Weisel? I don't know how to pronounce that. But it's, neutrality helps the oppressor, never to the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Yeah. And you realize that we don't have a choice. Like if we believe in everyone being treated fairly and humanely, which I think is a given if you're connected to any form of empathy, then we don't ha- you don't have a choice. And if you think you have a choice, that's just privilege, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, so that, um, the, the idea that there's two stances, racist or anti-racist, that's from Ibram X. Kendi, who is like such, um, I, and we'll make sure that there are resources there to connect with his work because he is such an, his voice is so like just, spot on, brilliant, like kind of just sinks right into your head and into your heart. And that makes so much sense, right? Because we spend, we shut the conversation down when we're trying to figure out, is this person racist, right? Because that is the chances of somebody is going to lean into that label. I am a racist is, is just, it's a non, it's a non-conversation starter versus it's more helpful to look at this choice, this comment, these words, this thought pattern, this logic form as being either racist or anti-racist. And the idea, as you're saying, like neutrality, which I think is where a lot of like sort of liberal white folks have spent a lot of time living is sort of thinking I'm not doing harm. And that not doing harm is the reflection of like blindness and, and the thinking that like being a nice person is enough. And that clearly it's not enough, as you're saying that that, that this, this just keeps, we're not better yet. We're not there yet. We're not healed yet. And that is true. I think about that when I'm working with couples, you know, um, and I think this is maybe also why it's a bit more challenging for men is it's like, I can imagine a man being like, God, I'm working so hard. Like I look at my, a, a white man, I look at my dad, I look at my grandpa. I am way, way, way more emotionally intelligent than my elders are. And I'm trying really hard. I'm learning my love language. I know my, you know, I'm learning all that. I'm listening to Mark Groves every episode that drops. I'm listening. Like it just, you know, I'm I'm in, I'm in aware of the Me Too movement. I've changed who I am at work. Like here's another thing. Like I think that is part of the experience of being a white, straight man right now is feeling like there's so much expectation to just keep going, keep going, keep going. And you have to. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what? You didn't have to previously because the world was designed around you not having to, you know. So, like, this is the work. This is how you leave a world that is more loving. You know, I hey, I've been like, I I want to tap out, you know, Mm -hmm. certainly. Mm -hmm. But I recognize that I have the privilege of saying I want to tap out. But other people don't get that choice, and I recognize that that it's like you know, it's going to be hard show up anyways. And that's Mm -hmm. true of everything in life. You know, like you're going to have to have hard conversations with people you love show up anyway. Like no one, I remember listening to Lisa Nichols speak at a conference and she said, someone asked about um, wanting to divorce their partner and they've been waiting for a long time to have that conversation. And she said, who told you when you came to this world that you wouldn't one day have to pull up your big girl panties and have a hard (laughs) conversation? You know, who told you that you wouldn't have to hurt people or be hurt? Like, mm-hmm. grow up. And I was sitting in the audience like, oh, shit. Uh-huh. That's true. And, you know, I think of this, The we are so afraid of discomfort, especially when it's about how we might have been. Like, I didn't mean to. It's, you know, but sitting in that, 
You know, I didn't mean to say to my friend, like, well, don't all lives matter. I didn't mean to say that. It didn't come from uh, an intention to be impactful, you know, to have a negative impact, but it had a negative impact. And I know you speak about the difference between intention and impact. Right, 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 right. And that that it's it's challenging to get our heads around, like this is, um, this is trauma, right? This is trauma, generation after generation of trauma. And so, yes, you as an individual white person you know, maybe you, you haven't, you know, said the N word, you haven't like done, you know, whatever, been involved in a hate crime, but all the ways in which that, that, that is the responsibility of having white skin is to understand hurt that's been done, even if it wasn't you specifically, right? That there's a part of this is a, it's a part of a big, big, big system and trauma. The thing we know, I mean, there's like just so many fascinating like bridges between different like kinds of work that we are involved with, right? The thing we know about trauma work is it doesn't get better until there's a reckoning with the original sin. We have not in the US, we have not reckoned with the original sin of racism or the original sin of displacing indigenous people. Like we are this whole country, this whole social contract we call America is built on those original sins, those traumas that haven't gotten healed. So it's like, duh, no wonder we keep playing. We know that anybody who is a survivor of trauma or been a perpetrator of harm is going to keep playing it out again and again and again until there's been a reckoning and a process for restoration, restoration, restorative justice, acknowledgement, like looking the thing in the eyes and saying, this is horrible. This did harm. You've been harmed. But that's that's how trauma gets healed. It can't get healed until it's been named. Until it's been named. And the atonement is, you know, like actually atoning for the things that have occurred. You know, a lot of people I've read responses that say this was before me. This is generations. This is I don't do this. And it's like, yeah, sure. But we all are part of this. We all inherited the benefits of what, you know, I was in um, I'm Not Your Negro, the, which is based on James Baldwin's yeah. writing, it, which is a fan, I, everyone should watch it. It's so incredible. We're talking about how like the U.S. wouldn't have been the U.S. without the cheap labor, without this, you know, like it's built upon the backs of these people. Sylvester McNutt, I had a conversation with him the other day, he was saying like this nation is built upon that. And we don't acknowledge that. It wasn't out of compassion and people paid fair wages. It, That's right. Right. That's right. So like the very privilege we have today of having the, the I, you know, I obviously go to the U.S. a lot for work. It is the very privilege of all of these things is due to the um, traumatic beginnings. Yeah. Yep. And there's a, there's a way in which like at a deeper psychological level, like I having been in college, you know, in the nineties was when we were talking about affirmative action. Right. And there was so much pushback about affirmative action. And there's a way in which to be white and to be, to think that things aren't fair, people shouldn't get things they haven't worked for. There's a way it's a massive projection, right? Cause I think there is at, at some level of awareness I have things that I didn't work for that I just got because of being generation after generation of a white person in the U S mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, that I started, it's an expression. Like I started on third base and acted like I hit a home run. You know, there are so many ways that I've had the wind at my back. And so there's at a deep, deep psychological level, 
people who get focused on affirmative action being wrong or unfair, that whole thing, it's like it's easier than reckoning with ways in which it's a projection, right? What, What are the ways in which I have things that I actually didn't earn and the fear of like imposter syndrome of have I, have I gotten here? Not because of my innate ability and work ethic and da, 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 you know, maybe I manifest it. Maybe it's white privilege like that sort of yeah. that's going around. And I think that's the thing that we're trying to avoid is that fear of like, shit, how much of my world reflects me versus how much of my world and my scope and my reach and my accomplishment and my status is a reflection of the fact that I've had a lot in my favor or some things in my favor. And that's, I think that inability to reckon with that, then we do harm. We do harm whenever we can't sit with our shadow, right? We end up doing harm, projecting onto others or judging others, defocusing rather than sitting with that discomfort. Well, in your article, you had a line which I loved, which was our reactions to conversations about macro issues like racism cannot be separated from the micro dynamics of our own life stories, personalities, and individual pain points. Mm-hmm. And I love that because that's, you know, I, I wrote about this last week in this conversation that we've been having that, that you, how you operate in your relationship, your ability to handle hard conversations, your ability to learn that parts of you are not great sometimes, your ability to do that on a micro level will be indicative of your ability to do it on a macro level. Like you can't be one or the other. If you can't do it in understanding the the way that you've been shaped and the privilege you might have experienced, that if you can't do that, then you won't be able to do it in a relational conversation either because the skill set, the ability to sit in humility and shame and guilt, right. to be able to hold those experiences. If you can't do it in a macro level, you can't do it in a micro and vice versa. No. And I think there's a way in which our men end up disadvantaged in that conversation because of everything we do when we socialize a man. I'm talking here about, about white men in particular around don't cry, don't lose, don't let him see you sweat. And so there's and um, and a way in which like we have we have taught men to value rationality. Mm-hmm. So things like saying, let me play devil's ad- advocate here, or theoretically speaking, or what if we switch the variables around, you know, all this kind of like very heady, very left brain, very debatey kind of stuff that can happen around race, I think is, perpetuates the problem, right? And that, and so in that way, it makes sense. Like the, the things we've praised and taught men to be good at, like critical thinking, you know, playing devil's advocate, kind of sharpening up your argument, that stuff is so paralyzing when it comes to conversations about race, which have got to be conversations that lead far more with heart than with head, at least in this moment. Um, certainly there's a place for critical thinking and strategy and policy. But but to to do that sometimes is like at the expense of just like letting your heart break and open and bear witness. Um, and that's so uncomfortable. And it's oftentimes that's oftentimes a barrier in couples therapy, right? When I'm sitting with a heterosexual couple and he's trying to logic his way through. And so then we are spending time in session, just working on empathy training. And it's, and, and men come by that skill deficit oftentimes real honestly, because it is antithetical to what we teach inside of the the man box, whatever you want to call it, you know, that that's, what we pr- what we pride men on is being able to th- have sharp thinking and you know win an argument and those things don't don't 
don't serve us well in these matters of the heart and humanity and connection. Yeah, my social media manager, who's brilliant, I love the people that I work with because they always reflect back opportunities for growth uh, for me, which is amazing. You know, I, I consider it an honor to have people who tell me the truth um, when I don't see it. And she said, you know, you write often about the systemized nature of things, like the organ, which is very true. My head, I go to my head because, you know, if we're getting into the specifics, as a kid, I was told I wasn't smart. So mm-hmm. I ensure that I know research and I, you know that, <laughs> you know, yeah. I like know research. I know things so that I can't be caught in a moment of experiencing, not knowing. I'm aware of that. I am aware that sometimes that can show up as condescension and, 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 and it's a protective mechanism. Yeah. And when she said that to me, I felt defensiveness, which knew I know that's a good sign that there's truth below something. So I asked more, for more information. And she said to me, you, you need to connect to the suffering of the people, to the experience of them, like writing about the systems and the oppression. Great. But that's, again, privilege of being able to sit in the systemic nature to solve. How are we going to solve this from this macro level you know, I'm like, well, I like to understand patterns. I like to understand patterns so I can learn where the shift or the change of the behavior is. Mm-hmm. And I realize that's, that's, although it can come from an empathic place and I can mm-hmm. access, I certainly have no problem accessing the relationship to the suffering. It was that in a way, when I sat with it, I felt like I was going to get swallowed up by all the pain. I realized that the ability to turn it off is only because I'm not a person of color. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, I got to go deep into the stories of these people. And so I started to, that's why I watched, uh, I'm not your Negro. I wanted yeah. to connect to that. And then the stories of Maya Angelou, you know, and so that, so as you say that I really recognize how in my own experience, although uh, people listening or people following me might identify me as empathic and emotional and yeah, sometimes when it's convenient, I'm not. Uh-huh. And so recognizing that within myself has been extremely freeing because I felt like a new access of pain um, has come just by immersing myself in that. And I know for men, if you're male and you're listening, it can feel overwhelming to get lost in that. Um, but I promise you that's where you'll find yourself. That's actually where you live. That's mm-hmm. actually access to your right to feel, which can feel overwhelming sometimes. And I think you know, by us modeling it, it, it gives permission, but it's certainly not me who gives permission or you. It's the person themselves who, who gives themselves permission. That's really powerful. That's really powerful, right? Yeah, that there's all kinds of reasons to go into our heads on this. And in part it is, right, because it's also like the urgency, like we have to make this better right now. There's no more time, not one more black person dying at the hands of the police. Like no more. We had to like, what are we gonna do right now, right now, right now? So that, Mm -hmm. so that like heady system problem solving mode, I think speaks to the urgency, but you're right. I think it speaks to something else as well, which is just how, what it's like to tap into, to let ourselves tap into and feel and be moved by like the fear of every black parent who's raising a black kid, every person and every, every black person in a workspace who's the only one you know, only all, just all of it, all of it, all of it, just that it is generations and generations of pain and to the fear of being swallowed up by it. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, for people listening, I want them to get the, uh, 
beautiful. We'll link out your article, but I want them to get the gist of of how to do this because I think that's important. You spoke to the difference between how men and women might experience, you know, the the way that a male is socialized and versus the way a female is, and of course the intersections that a female would experience uh, versus a male. That that one extra intersection of gender is a massive one. It's a massive one because, again, it's more oppression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I think for us as men to be able to sit in how, you know, I really sit with the, I am, I am inspired by the courageous action of a woman sharing her needs and her wants because I recognize how courageous that is in a world that's been told that, you know, to a woman to center themselves around the needs and wants of a man. Mm-hmm. And so I recognize that, but to, if we can access that as a male first, as well as recognizing that there's so many things for us to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And even just, if we want to go to the research, Oops. what, um, one thing I reference in the article is the, is the opportunity here for, um, when a man takes the opportunity with his intimate partner to let himself deepen into a conversation about race, to drop defensiveness, to lean in, to maybe watch something together, right? Like I love the idea of watching something together, reading something together and kind of having that as the entry point. When he does that, he's it's something that's such a profound trust builder in their relationship, right? So the Gottman's research, it's amazing. Like the Gottman's like basically they'll take, you know, their 40 years of research on couples, even though they have looked at queer couples, they have looked a lot more at straight couples as all researchers unfortunately have. And they find just again and again and again that the single most predictive quality in a straight intimate partnership is his ability to lean into her negative emotions. Mm. And so that's, so the degree to which if she says, I'm raw as hell right now, like I'm just, I'm hurting, I'm angry, I'm scared, I'm ashamed, and I don't know what the hell to do about it, for him to meet her in that space is so good for their relationship. And so I think there's a, I think there's a way in which like right now, heterosexual white couples can be like a powerful unit for change, right? Because Mm -hmm. maybe, because if he can be brave enough to fumble around in a conversation with her and she can be uh, patient enough, engaged enough, compassionate enough to engage with him then the ch- whatever change they make within their dyad, whatever understandings, whatever connections they make around whiteness, privilege, all that stuff, they then can radiate out, right? Then he work, he walks into his workplace differently. He walks into his gym differently. He walks into whatever, having a beer with a friend yeah. differently. Um, so I, I think it's a, I want it to be a powerful like lab, right? Or a practice ground or a safe place to, have some of these to start to look at it, to start to look at what, what's, what's getting activated in me around my gender, around my race, around my experience that creates this defensiveness or fear or silence. And then what's the impact on that? Yeah. Cause I think that's, as you said, you know, indicative of the micro macro sort of invitation that if I can, if I have learned how to sit in my defensiveness in any form of feedback, I should have no problem sitting in it with this too. So if I can't with this, it means I can't with other things. Mm -hmm. Because for me, like, you know, the other day, my partner was 
mad about what's, you know, what's going on, rightfully so. Also tapping into the anger about patriarchy. And I just said, let it rip, like, like go. Yeah. Okay. With me sharing this anger with you. And I was like, yeah, go. Like you have a free, say whatever you want to say. I won't take it personally. Consider me the, the model of everything you're mad at right now. Mm-hmm. And I didn't take it personally. I mean, there was the little kid in me was like, Ooh, that one's good. <laughs> that was, <laughs> but after she was like, thank you. That was so powerful to just be able to do that without like you trying to gaslight me or say that's not valid. Or, and so I think that ability, you know, in the Gottman's research, they talk about the antidote to defensiveness is saying, I can see some truth in what you're saying. And what a beautiful, you know, instead of like blocking it with, well, you're this or you did this, it's being able to say, oh, let me receive what you're saying. I know in some of their other research on sex, that it's a man's response to a woman's no that predicts the future level of intimacy that relationship will have. Will he make it about him or will he actually get curious and and say, oh, you're not feeling bad. Okay, well, would you like to go for a walk or would you, you know, and and I see that, you know, the ability to listen. Yeah, to persist and to persist, right? To stay big, wide, open-hearted versus shriveling and retreating in defensiveness, which is almost always a cover for shame, right? Mm-hmm. One layer down or two layers down. And that, yeah, that then cuts connection. And then, and doesn't give, I mean, I love that example you gave of just letting your partner, like, go, just say it, get it out. Because that is like, there is a cathartic, you know, quality right now. um, And to be able to do that without, without shifting into debate mode or intellectual mode or saying that, wow, that's a lot or being overwhelmed by it. That's a a lovely way to start perhaps, right? Is that maybe we don't need two people who are equally fired up, but at least a partner who is like, come to me when you're fired up and like, let me bear witness to it and be with you in it. And then, and from that place, then figure out what we can do differently. Like, right. Because from that place of like discharge and process, then maybe some ideas come forward about what, what specific actions do we want to take? Like what, what form might our activism take, but we can't get any, we can't get to any of that stuff unless it's safe enough to just be angry and raw and sad. When you said in the article that one of maybe one of the best ways to have that hard conversation is not is to one set the environment, you know, like don't sit face to face, like stand side by side, go for a walk. What were some of the other suggestions that you have for that? Do it sober. I think <laughs> sober is, uh, I would say, an incredibly important key aspect of it. Sober is really key. Mm-hmm. Um, and to maybe not have it in the moment when there's been uh, a you know a, a, a thoughtless comment or a racist comment. Again, racist meaning, right? Something that is um, that is just not moving us towards a place, towards a more equitable world. I was really troubled. You know, I don't know if you're following this Greg Glassman CrossFit debacle. So Greg Glassman is the head of CrossFit. And he has had a, a, several problematic tweets um, that were racist. Um, I'm not saying he is a racist man, right? Because again, we're talking about there are two ways of, two things a comment can be, racist or anti-racist. And these were not clearly not anti-racist. And so then, you know, after he doubled down and tripled down in his apology, I guess it was an apology. He said, what I said was not racist, but it was hurtful. So even in the, even in the apology, it's like, but it wasn't, but it still wasn't racist. 
But um, so, so if it's on, I think it's helpful for a couple to have a conversation that's not maybe on the heels of a really raw moment, right? Because when we, in the moment when we're called out, our defensiveness can be the, can be spiked and can kind of be the most activated. So could it be, we watch a movie, we watch, I am not your Negro together and kind of go from there. Or we, we listen to a podcast together and we go from there. So there's a bit of a neutral, bit of a neutrality as the entry point to the conversation versus this conversation starts by me calling out your problematic language, mm. but responsive rather than reactive. Yeah, that you're both in some state where you can hold reactivity, that that you can hold, because, you know, defensiveness, when it comes up, we get so flooded. I mean, our brain, the, the, the effective part of our problem-solving brain is essentially gone, unless we can learn how to breathe. And it's certainly not going to start with a conversation that is already incredibly heated. You know, that's not the time to continue. You also speak to the idea of going meta you know, mm. in that conversation, you did say first ask for permission, you know, which is not to say like, do you give me permission to have this conversation? It's to say like, Hey, are you free right now? Do you have the space to have this conversation? I love that. I love that. I mean, that's, you know, again, that's something that I want us to be doing all the time and all of our all relationships. hard conversations. True of all, all hard conversations. conversations. Yes. Uh, you know, another place where that, where that meta is really true right now is is if we want to connect with a black with a, per, a colleague of ours who is black, we want to check in. We want to make sure that we're they're okay. See what they need. Just to kind of go meta there first, like, hey, I wanted to check in with you. You know, is there? Please let me know when you're available or if you'd be available. Like, rather than I think sometimes I think what's happening right now is white people are so fired up to try to do good that they're kind of scrolling through and making sure that every black person in their world is okay, or they're asking, or they're asking like questions like, what can I do? Which again what you can do is Googleable, right? You can go to Google and see some things you can do. So don't be putting that emotional work on black colleagues and black friends, but even just going meta around, like, I would love to check in if you're available, let me know. And with our partners and a conversation about race, it's, I would love to have a conversation with you about it. When might be a good time? So that we're sort of, even just there, we're, we're opening with curiosity and we're inviting somebody to the table versus saying, we're talking about this now which which automatically is going to create defensiveness. Mm, the, so they get to choose, which is great. I think one of those, uh, I mean, this is a rule in often when we're dealing with conflict, is that, yes, you can say no to having the conversation. And it's, you know, I, I like the idea that there's a 24-hour rule, that you must mm-hmm. return to it within 24 hours. That way it creates safety, that when you say no, you're not saying no forever. You're actually the one who re-engages and builds that trust that when you say no, you always return and the other person can honor your no. Does that make sense? That's hu- yes. And that's huge because if you are, and again, Gottman's research shows if you're a straight couple, most likely she's the one who's saying, hey, I have a thing I want us to talk about. And so if that's what she's saying repeatedly and he's saying, yeah, but not now, yeah, but not now, it just it's just a road to divorce. Bad places, including divorce. Yeah, because essentially the message you end up sending, whether it's your intention or not, is your avoidance gets communicated as they're not important to you. Mm-hmm. And the conversation, and that's really ultimately what is occurring, even though it might be coming from a place of fear. It, mm-hmm. Right? Because again, intention is not to hurt them and tell them they're not important. It's the the intention is I want to protect myself from having hard conversations and being uncomfortable. 
wherever that might come from, probably from our childhood. But man, as Lee Cynical says, who said you'd get to live this life and not be uncomfortable? That's right. You know? That's right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that can be a problem too, right? Is that I don't, I don't even know. I, I'm not even actually aware of my shame. All I know is I can't go there with you. I can't go there with you. So the first step may be getting curious about why, 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 why am I so scared of this conversation? Like just starting with that, what scares me about this conversation and starting to play with the hypothesis that I'm afraid of feeling badly. I'm afraid of being, of being told I don't measure up. And there again, there might be a ghost in the room around that's exactly how I felt in my family again and again and again, that I was a screw up, that I didn't get it, that I wasn't enough. And so my fear that's fueling my defensiveness is I'm going to be exposed as coming up short. And, and that's something that's a, that's a piece of relational work, right? Like you deserve to have a partner who gets that doesn't let you off the hook because of it, but who gets that? Who says, babe, that makes so much sense to me that growing up, what I know, what I know, what I understand about your family experience was I could get, I understand why a conversation like this would be scary because you grew up in a family that did gotchas that got you just exposed enough to, you know, suck it to you and, and humiliate you. And so I, your fear makes sense. Your defensiveness makes sense. And we still, you know, I'm not taking it off the table. Like we need to have this conversation anyways. Explain those gotchas. I think people would be fascinated by this. So like a setting in a family where they have a conversation and as soon as they expose a lack of knowledge, then mm-hmm. they gotcha. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's yeah. Like then there's, then they're made fun of mm-hmm. or, or the gotcha may come later, right? Like you have a conversation that you think was heartfelt and then the next time something's happening, that's used against you. Your vulnerability mm-hmm. gets used against you. That makes me mad. I feel like I've occurred. That's I've experienced that not in my family, but certainly in uh, school when I was younger, mm-hmm. uh, friendships, teachers, where you think it's a safe container. And then all of a sudden they pull out this vulnerable share on you later. Um, and I, I think, you know, this is where all conversations that are hard are healing when we can hold the space for our not enoughness, you know, because as you're saying, this is really ultimately what's coming up is this fear that I'm unworthy, that I'm not enough, that, oh my gosh, any time that can come up, it's such an opportunity to be enough just by being present, just by showing up to prove that it's not in their approval of you. It's in your own um, alignment with your own integrity. Yeah. Who you want to be. And I um I think for everyone listening, this isn't just about conversations about race. This is how you need to do conflict always. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we're essentially getting schooled on how to have hard conversations. It just happens to be about the subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So set, setting the stage is your sorry, did you want to share more? No, just about I think maybe also maybe another like form that fear takes is the fear of loss, the fear of losing whatever. And I think right now is a, it's a tremendous, you know, we have these like twin public health crises of the, of the pandemic coronavirus and looking with a magnifying glass at systemic racism, like those two things are happening right now and they're separate, but they're related and they're entwined. And so there's a lot of fear. And so it may be, I think that's also to be a white man is to, is to fear a loss, right? To fear of if, you know, if we dismantle racism, like I'm afraid of losing privilege, power, income, status. Um, so a fear of loss 
And I think the fear of loss right now is so present because of this virus that that may just, that may also just be part in the room is like, yeah, what we're talking about really is dismantling systems of power and making it look really different. Stephen Colbert was saying the other night about, um, you know, white people are going to become the minority in the U.S. in the next, I think, in the next decade. And there's never been a, a culture that has been able to have a minority rule without using dehumanization of the majority. And so is that really what we want? Like our choice is really to figure out how to lean into a more equitable share, how to allow ourselves to be led by people of color, how to allow ourselves to exist in the minority. And um, because otherwise, because the option is not good, right? The option, if, if white people want to keep systems of power as we become a demographic minority, it's going to be really ugly what happens in order to keep keep power looking the way that it does and pray we don't go in that direction. So it's sort of like reckoning with that, like reckoning with, yeah, there may be some loss and more and, and surrender and letting go and allowing things to look different. Yeah. I think about like, okay, well, you know, I think hypothetically about any power I lose is not power that was garnered fairly anyways, Mm -hmm. you know, that it is, really just a recalibrating, a shaking of the system that puts us all on a level playing field. And I recognize that elevating voices of people who've been marginalized is actually how you flip the system. You know, it's actually how you flip it is to say, get up and stand upon me, you know, and that that feels like it's interesting when I first shared about Black Lives Matter on my Instagram and was writing about it, I lost followers for the first time in my whole time of being on Instagram, I, I saw that more than I gained. And I got a lot of messages like, don't worry, you're doing the right thing. And I was like, Oh, I'm not worried. Like, this is not, I don't care about losing followers. I care that it occurred under these circumstances. I mean, I've certainly lost followers for saying another shit, but it shouldn't be for that type of thing. It can be for being, you know, I've been offensive in other ways and learn from it, or I say things that are extreme often but to lose them at this really hit me in the heart, you know, to think like, wow, we're so delicate that we can't even have an Instagram account that we follow about love and relationships that that causes an unfollow. And of course, like in some level, good riddance. And on the other, like it saddens me that there's not that openness because I did it in a real gentle way. You know, it's not like I went in your face. I was mindful you know, my social media manager and I communicated about that. Like, how do we mindfully invite this conversation so that we don't trigger the amygdala to not listen? Yeah. And it's been really fascinating to observe. But of course, the conversations have been 99.9% incredible. And, and that's beautiful to witness that, that people want to have this conversation in general. And that feels really good. I, I love that you shared um, that graphic of showing that you had lost more followers than you had gained. And I love that you framed it just as you said just now. It's not about it's not about a, a blow to your ego, but what, what you did was you held up a mirror, right? And you gave us you gave us a, a, a powerful example of what's of white fragility really is what you you know is what you showed us was white fragility of just not I don't want to look at this I don't want to listen I, I, you know I, I come to you for these things it's sort of this the stay in your lane idea right like we want is it Laura Ingram or some some extreme right-wing person who like when an athlete was speaking out about race you know it was like just dribble right this idea that everyone should just stay in their lanes when in fact 
that's so it's what we all need to be doing. Like, I love that there are like wellness professionals and people at gyms and people in the cooking, the food and culinary industry and the art world. Like we need to be looking at the, at the educational system, the ivory tower, like all these spaces are spaces where we need to be having these conversations about race. It's not just about public policy. It's not just about police. It's about all of the, all of the ways we show up and communicate and engage with the world around us. And so absolutely relationship experts are, I think we do have a role to play and that is a kind of activism. It is a kind of healing. And there are, I know when I need to stay in my lane around, you know, I'm not going to be talking about policy or things that are outside of my area of expertise, but my gosh, if you and I can't talk about relate what we know about relationship science, what we know about empathy and trauma and humanity and compassion. If we can't talk about that, then we're not, we're not being as fully of service as we could be. Right. I mean, I mean, I, I agree. I had one person write me and say well, a couple being like, you know, write about relationships. I'm like, this is fucking relationships. Are you fucking kidding me? One, don't tell me what to write. That pisses me off. Yeah. <laughs> Two, don't try to censor me. I get real revved about that. And if you don't like it, unfollow. Like, mm-hmm. And then don't tell me that you unfollow. Whenever anyone tells me that, I'm like, I don't need to know. Like, do you wave goodbye when you leave every store? Like, get out of here. No, <laughs> go. Go leave the Yelp review. I, don't, I, I just don't have time for that. I had one um, Latin follower write me and say that the fact that I'm writing about the recognition of privilege means that I believe I am part of a privileged race. And I was like, wow, this is... There's so many layers of conversation to have about right. this. I don't even have the time for that one. But, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting perspective, you know? And I'm like, wow, you're missing all of these other conversations that are important. And oof. anyway, yeah. But yeah, so in, so we've talked about going, you know, asking for permission to have this conversation, setting the stage. You talked about like not doing it from a reactionary state, um, being sober, also not being rushed or stressed. In that, um, and then the next one you had was remember that none of us can be understood outside of our context. So, do you want to explain that? I, yeah, I think that's I. None of us ask for the inheritance of racist ideas and white supremacist, you know, perspectives on life. We didn't ask to be born with to, when we're born white. We don't ask to be born with that, but we are born with that. And it and it and it comes out. There was a, a Twitter thread around like, how old were you when you had your first black teacher? Uh, I was in my first year of my PhD program. No, that's not true. I was in college. I was in college, but that's insane that from kindergarten, I think you were in high school. Yeah. It was just a really lovely example of just kind of showing how much, how much we are surround. Many of us white people are surrounded by whiteness. And so that we don't, that's our context, right? That's, we grew up, many of us grew up in these bubbles with the media we consumed, the family members we had, the things we overheard at the Thanksgiving table, uh, all of that stuff. We didn't ask for that when we were kids. And so that context informs how we come into this. And based on the mate, you know, if we went to college, the majors we chose at college, like you really could scooch along for quite a while without really ever asking yourself the question, what does it mean for me to be a white person? What's my relationship to whiteness? What's my experience of whiteness? And so to, so it was a reminder about keeping our intimate partners in their context so that it's not just attack, you have to look at this, but also understanding how you came this far and didn't. Without look looking at it. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's fascinating. Um, be responsive, not reactive. 
that's what we were saying before about maybe trying to, ideally this conversation would not start with a comment that your partner makes that you find offensive. Cause that's sort of like that gotcha, right? Like, why would you say that? And so you sort of start, you start with um, an attack, which is going to invite a defend. So a responsive would be like, let's watch this together and have a conversation about it. Mm, I love that. Like being able to watch, there are so many available resources to share that conversation and then discuss from an open, safe space. Um, Netflix Netflix literally now has a whole section, a Black Lives Matter section, where they have pulled together um, movies and documentaries, which I think is so, and, sh- and, and sh- series. I think that's wonderful, easy entry point. Yeah, I saw that on Apple too, that it has like um, uh, acclaimed experiences of learning about, you know, Black history, Black culture, Black movies. And then the next is to model humility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I can start, if I start the conversation, I had, I had a really painful experience recently where I had a meeting with my team. It was on Thursday afternoon. So the George Floyd tape had just come out and the, and we were at the beginning of, you know, where we are now, but I had a meeting with my team that I adore. And I sat and we talked for an hour and a half about all the business of the relational self-awareness team. And I did not bring up George Floyd and my, um, a black woman on my team emailed me later and just was like, so hurt, so disappointed in me and my leadership. And I tell you what, it like leveled me for a good 48 hours. And um, she wasn't shaming me, but mm-hmm. fuck, I felt shame, right? Mm-hmm. I felt shame. I felt uh, just all kinds of feelings. And I, you know, and, and, and we talked about her availability for a repair and we still aren't fully repaired because she, spent the weekend protesting and being tear gassed. And so she is very, very, very actively in the trauma of this, but um, we have sort of put a pin in it and, and there is more repair. But the first thing that I said that I know to be true is that I will, I am sometimes slower on the uptake when the activating event is police brutality, because I'm the sister of a law enforcement mm. officer who I am, um, you know, he's my, he's my brother. I mean, I, I, adore him right to the moon, but sometimes that will create a, a space of disintegration for me where I'm, I'm a beat or two behind because it's like hard for me to put all those pieces together. It's, it's really raw and um, complicated. And so I owned that part of it. it does not let me off the hook in any way, shape or form, but I do. It was a reminder of that piece. So that, so that's the humility, right? The humility, humility is beautiful to recognize that now, you know, that there's a couple beats. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, there's that beat. Mm-hmm. Now it's time. Yep, yep, yep. And um, and so that humility, right? So so, can you when you bring this up with your intimate partner, can you start with a story like that of your own fuck up, of your own what I call like an FGO, your own fucking growth opportunity, a time where you, you know, somebody that you care about pointed something out to you, and start there because because we are all to be white is to be in in this collective stew. And so that's, that I think can be like a really loving way to start the conversation. Beautiful. And then address the ghosts. The ghost is what we were saying before about family system dynamics, you know, family dynamics, like maybe like, what do you understand about your partner's struggles with empathy, struggles with defensiveness, struggles with putting words to feelings? Like how does their family story, their growing up experience, their personality, the temperament, how might those things um, those ghosts in the room, old painful experiences, be making this conversation harder. 
Mm, yeah, it's such a beautiful thing to start to ask questions, which you should, we should all do, which is, what did I learn about communication from my family? Did we talk? Did we not? Was it always aggressive? Was it a high volume? Did we avoid all conflict? Did I ever see my parents repair? Did I, you know, observe healthy communication? Were people allowed to have their own thoughts, feelings, opinions? All of these stories that each of us bring to our relationships, when we understand our own story, beautiful, because we know how it's influencing myself in the moment. Um, and sure, defensiveness is for sure. I'm a recovering defender. So as a child, I was very defensive, observed it from my family system. And then as an adult, you know, being able to also know your partner's story that way, when that sensitive, delicate thing or that blind spot they have, it just needs that tender awareness. I mean, you build such a bridge where normally both of our walls hit each other. It's like, oh, there's that thing and that vulnerability of, of owning the thing and loving the thing and then yeah. choosing something different. Yep, yep. Or even the ghost. So here the way the ghost might play out is if you know your partner goes into their head when they feel threatened, mm -hmm. right? So they go into this like intellectual place. And right now a very intellectual conversation might feel infuriating to you because you're like, no, we have to talk about the pain and the trauma and the rawness of these mothers who are terrified of letting their boys go to the store. Da, da, da. But if they're in their head, maybe knowing, aha, I know that my partner goes to their head because whatever, that was how they survived. Their addicted family was by locking themselves in their room and doing homework and, you know, whatever, whatever the story is, you know, about your partner's tendency towards intellectualizing. Yeah. And your last part is recover and celebrate. So what's that mm -hmm. look like? I, so this, I know that my, I think about a lot of, about my students for whom their activism, their allyship is such a huge piece of the pie of who they are. And so much of their bandwidth is devoted to that. And I oftentimes say to them, like, I want you to save a little slice of the pie for play and joy and silliness and Netflix that is maybe not the Black Lives Matter, like Netflix that is really kind of like just lets you kind of refuel and and re restore and get ready to go again to the next round. And so for couples, this might look like like having a really rich, deep, complicated, nuanced conversation and then getting to whatever, go for a walk you know, take a shower together, make love, have some delicious food. Like you get to have that, which can be hard during this time of trauma. I think we all are, I've heard and I've, and I've struggled with like, do we get to have pleasure? Do we get to have play? Do we get to have laughter? Do we get to have joy when it feels like the entire world is crashing and burning around us? And so I think giving permission to ourselves um, to have, have some play and some silliness and some levity is important. Like it's the other, it's the other facet of this and those inform each other right by restoring ourselves with pleasure and play and rest then we can go back to that space of learning and advocating and shifting ourselves and the world around us beautiful and i think you know when we talk about this conversation with romantic partners there's also the conversation of how do i have this conversation with my family you know like I have Republican parents or I have my granddad or my grandma, or, you know, and in the article, you talk about the differences of how age impacts often our political views, our openness to different conversations. So to be mindful of where other people come from, to know what has shaped them, not to, to have compassion for it, which is different than tolerance. And, you know, when we, you know, there are some people that this conversation is just not safe to have with and is not worth 
having for your own emotional experience. And if you know that those are those people, you know, it's a, the idea that you're going to change the way they see the world, the invitation of the conversation can, and just how much it matters to you, but to actually keep re-injuring yourself, trying to, you know, convince someone to see the world the way you see it, that can be an endless cycle. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, at some point it's like, listen, the world is going this way. And if you are not going to get on this train and make any effort to come in this direction, then I cannot, I cannot give any more to that. That's right. Because there is a way in which that, yeah, continuing to go back for more of the same is a boundary is letting your own boundaries be violated. And so it is assessing like how open somebody is, but in those conversations I do, that's where the none of us can be understood outside of our context is a really helpful part. So if it is with our parents or our grandparents, like saying, like, tell me about the community you grew up in. Did yeah. you have, did you go to school with black people? Did you, what was your, what did your fam, how did your family talk about people who were not white and um, what were the stories you inherited? So really starting from that place can maybe be helpful, but you're right. It is also reading the scene and knowing where your energy is best spent. And um, at some point I was reading a Twitter thread I think it is um, a woman who wrote, so you want to talk about race. Her last name is um, Oluo. And she was saying like, listen, you guys, at some point we got to leave the Trump supporters behind because it is, if your energy is going towards trying to convert your Trump supporting uncle, what it means you aren't doing is asking the people of your color in your community, what do you need me to do right now? What are the resources you need to do your job right now? And so it's like this idea of like trying to get one person to be less racist ends up being more of a waste of time and are, we're better served by turning to people who are doing the work and saying, how do I, what do you need from me? How can I tag in? How can I add resources? How can I be of service? One thing I think we should share on the show notes, I'll get you the link, is this really cool diagram that shows all the different forms that activism can take. Um, and so I think there is this like interesting identity process of where do you want to serve? Like, what does activism look like? How do you get to stay you celebrating your personality, your interests, your passions, and making a meaningful impact that we have, we can sometimes get locked into like activism only looks one way. It's like a monolith, but it doesn't have to be. There's actually like lots of different. So I, I'll, I think we should share that. It's a really beautiful diagram and some ideas about how you get to show up in a way that really just feels like it's you being even more of you. Yeah, I love that. I think, you know, as we close this out, one, thank you so much for taking the time to share this. As soon as, you know, you shared that article with me, I agreed that this was an important conversation to have. So thank you for uh, initiating all of this. I really appreciate you. Thank you for making space. I was, I was like, it was a, it was a good, I figured you'd say yes, but you know, with an invite, you never know. And so I was so glad that you were receptive and uh, and then we took the risk. I think it is risky to be, to be white and having these conversations. And I hope, I hope we get feedback from people who listen and I hope that they will point out where we could have been even more expansive. Mm-hmm. And I, um, and just as when, just as any episode that you do, people's reactions to the conversation you're having with whoever you have on our individual reaction to that is a point of inquiry. Mm-hmm. Why were you, why were you angry when Mark said that or Alexander said that? Why did you want to push back against that? Like those can be points of inquiry, but they also can be points of feedback for us Absolutely. to know to know what we missed or what was left incomplete. Yeah, I agree. Because uh, I mean, I think I speak for both of us when I say like, we just want to do it better. That's all. I mean, ultimately, I just want to be do better, be better. And, 
you know, when I think about the context of this conversation, it's, you know, you might not agree with everything we've said, but let's certainly celebrate the courageous act of having these conversations. Um, and, you know, I, it is human when you step into altruistic behavior and, and it's activism. Um, is that the right activism? Mm-hmm. That you will feel better about yourself because you are contributing to humanity, equality. And, you know, ultimately what we do on this planet when we're here is about preparing it for the people who will be here. And, and I certainly want it to be a place that's welping, welcoming and loving and all the systems that seem to be in the way of that are being challenged. And that's mm-hmm. a beautiful thing. And so I'm, I'm happy that this one's being challenged. And um, I think everyone needs to ask themselves, like, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want to know you stood for? Because, hey, if you get off this rock and you realize that you're an entity floating and you were a dick when you were on the planet, you're not going to like that. You're going to have to pay for it in another place. No, you're a floating dick. Oh, yeah. There might be a place <laughs> with more pain and that you'll be sent to. So good luck. Anyway, <laughs> do you want to let everyone know where they can find you? Sure. My website is dralexandrasolomon.com and you can find my books and my social media and upcoming events all on the website. Yes. She has two fantastic books, Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back, both incredible books that I love and everyone I know who has read them, it, they have changed their lives. So please pick those up because they are well worth the investment. And uh, Ali, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you.